Good morning, this is The Burner, I am James Butler and it is Wednesday the 22nd of April and we are still in lockdown. Perhaps the most striking news this morning comes from the front pages of the Financial Times which updates its estimate for the real number of the UK dead to 41,000 after its analysis of the latest data from the Office for National Statistics. That estimate is more than double the official figure of 17,337 released by ministers on Tuesday, which is updated daily only counts those who've died in hospitals after testing positive for the virus. So all the questions we have been raising over the past few weeks about preparedness, about capacity, about the seriousness with which the government has dealt with the pandemic are right there in that number of 41,000. And you might hope that it will be pushed in front of ministers' faces this afternoon. What if we were also to zoom out a bit? What other questions does the pandemic highlight? What does it reveal about Britain in its faded post-imperial period? Here's Aaron Bastani. Britain's response to the coronavirus, particularly compared to other countries, not just in Europe but around the world, including the Global South, has got me thinking. Is the United Kingdom, particularly England, still a modern country? By which I mean, is it at the cutting edge of technological innovation, manufacturing, best practice as a society? And how does this relate to the perennial question that so plagues its establishment, whoever eager to channel a greater national mythos in their own self-interest, namely of whether Britain wishes to be a smaller player bound within multilateral coalitions or a great power, making moves and alliances with other sovereign states on an ad hoc basis? England, minus London, has a GDP of around $1.7 trillion, just over half Britain's GDP as it presently is, or rather was, at $2.9 trillion. That's around the same size as Spain, both in terms of population and economic size. Similar size economies are South Korea and Australia. Importantly, however, it's an economy which has been marked for a long time by low productivity and low rates of technological employment. The value added by industries in London is high, but beyond there and strips of what is called the Silicon Fen, it's really only flashes rather than anything significant. Nobody walking down a high street in most cities and towns would have much reason to disagree. One story from last month really drove this home for me, when experts warned that while the UK possesses the scientific knowledge to potentially discover a vaccine, or at least significantly contribute in any broader global effort, it lacks the manufacturing capability to mass-produce such a vaccine. It's fair to say that once such a vaccine is discovered, countries will pivot all production to domestic demands. The question then is, could Britain do the same? Right now, the answer appears to be no. This is the kind of industrial issue our political media class have, at least until now, viewed as unimportant. As one source told The Telegraph, the geography of where you produce them, vaccines, calls the shots. You can't export them without saying it's okay to export. They went on to add, Nation states become pretty territorial when it comes to healthcare issues, and if you don't have the capacity, you'll be the last in the queue to get the products. The UK, it turns out, doesn't have the capacity, which means, at least for now, we'll be last in that queue. Now, this technological or industrial weakness is also obvious in Britain's response to coronavirus as a public health crisis in the here and now. Since early March, the Chinese government has given each person a unique QR code, which allows them to access trains, buses, go to work, and so on. This is attendant, it's important to say, with major problems around potentially negative incentives, people trying to make themselves sick to gain immunity in future. Uh, Not to mention that the data has been inevitably inserted within the broader state panopticon of surveillance. And yet its technical audacity and execution, and the speed at which it's been released, are hugely impressive. 
Compare that to Britain, where we now know 25% of our tests haven't been working, and some of the most memorable policies have been a social care badge meant to recognise the graft of care workers, but which costs more than many earn in an hour, or Pretty Patel's call to draw a hand on your heart to highlight domestic violence. That's before even mentioning centenarians walking kilometres in their back garden raising money for the NHS through online crowdfunders. Now, that's not to diminish the impulse of charity or the big hearts of those individuals involved, but rather how such efforts highlight a remarkable lack at the level of the state and what you would expect from the British government, namely decisive, well-resourced intervention. After all, this is the country which, not that long ago, developed the de Havilland Comet, the world's first commercial jet airliner, which had the world's first nuclear power station, commercial one at least, and was one of a select handful of countries to enjoy a satellite launch capability. More importantly, it did that while educating its young for free, offering housing to all, and not to mention generous pensions and public health care as well. While the demise of Britain's post-war welfare state has been a topic of much debate and contestation, the same discussion hasn't really prevailed when it comes to the similar downfall of its industrial and manufacturing base. Until recently, it just seemed like common sense that industry was something for developing countries, while high-GDP economies like Britain moved into intangibles like financial and legal services, real estate and the digital economy. Yet, it seems to me at least, the coronavirus has been a coup de grace and a realisation which has been growing for some time, that maybe industry is a good thing, and that while making money from property, London as a financial hub, outsourcing the country's public services or privatisation of its rail, mail and water might make for far easier returns, that from the standpoint of national security, by which I mean things like vaccines rather than a big red nuclear button, and progress, it's probably a bad idea. Britain, it must be said, hasn't had an industrial policy in a meaningful sense for four decades. This was obvious under Margaret Thatcher, whose mantra was simply that the market always knows best, but was also true under Blair and Brown. And while the latter was something of an improvement, particularly on climate change, even his industrial czar was one Lord Peter Mandelson. This has meant that Britain has fallen significantly behind in areas like industrial robotics. We have fewer industrial robots than the Czech Republic or Thailand, renewables manufacture, AI, biotech and much more. That poses a few problems. The first is, it leaves Britain in a difficult spot to engage with the major issues of the 21st century, automation, demographic ageing and climate change to name but three. What is more, the absence of an industrial policy means that good high value jobs aren't really being created, something which will be increasingly problematic as the high street and offline retail generally grind to a halt under coronavirus, but after which probably aren't going to come back. Before the crisis, we were repeatedly told by multiple agencies, including Public Health England, that we were well prepared for any pandemic, with this being repeated by Matt Hancock and indeed Boris Johnson. But we weren't. Why? One major reason was austerity, as last week's revelations in the Sunday Times put it. Several emergency planners and scientists said that the plans to protect the UK in a pandemic had once been a priority and had been well funded for the decade following 9-11. But then austerity cuts struck. We were the envy of the world, the source said, but pandemic planning became a casualty of the austerity years when there were more pressing needs. The last rehearsal for pandemic was the 2016 exercise codenamed Cygnus, which predicted the health service would collapse and highlighted a long list of shortcomings, including, presciently, a lack of PPE and intensive care ventilators, and yet the government did nothing. That same piece quotes a senior Department of Health insider who says... I'd watched Wuhan, but I assumed we must have not been worried because we did nothing. We just watched. A pandemic was always at the top of our national risk register. Always. But when it came to it, we just slowly watched. We could have been Germany, but instead we were doomed by our incompetence, our hubris and our austerity. 
What we're seeing here then with the coronavirus is the convergence of the legacy of Thatcher and Blair with that of Cameron and May, of hollowed out industries meeting a desiccated state and ever weakening public provision. This also applies to creating infrastructure for all the issues I've already highlighted, ageing, flooding, the decay of our high streets, all of which were issues before this virus, but which will be massively intensified in its aftermath. In China, mobile payment systems are used by almost 1 billion people, while in Britain we still use contactless. Now, that's more than just an insipid consumer observation, by the way. If you want to subordinate deep learning and AI to major public policy problems like dealing with a pandemic, you're going to need lots and lots of data available to public authorities, and the quickest way to do that is a digital payment system. Now, the creation of these things comes with huge responsibilities. But it isn't that Britain's government has some kind of moral quandary with your data. Rather, austerity rather than progress has been the name of the game for our political class for the best part of 15 years, as if time has stopped and all they care about really is shareholder value and filling their own pockets. And for a long time, those were synonymous with an idea of the future. But that's most certainly gone. In the 21st century, a country like Britain can't hope to be among the major powers, and in reality, such a label only really applies to China, the US and the EU if the last ever summons the necessary political will for fuller political integration. But the problem is that much of Britain's electorate, and even more of its political class and right-wing media, thinks that label applies to them too. Now, there's nothing wrong with aiming to be a medium-sized power that collaborates with others, which is what we should be in my opinion. But Britain's problem is that, right now, that's not where its future lies in the mind for many of those in charge. This, of course, dovetails with their ideology. Low taxes, financial services, weak state, manufactured goods always being imported from abroad. Which is all fine until you need to start doing things like produce tens of millions of vaccines rapidly, or address climate change or reorder resources to accommodate an increasingly old population. What decades of neoliberalism has left us with is an inability to solve problems as a country political class who are uncomfortable with anything not entirely dependent on the market, and a technological base inferior to what appear at first glance at least much poorer countries. In short, this is what a country in historic decline looks like. That is, as ever, the result of political choices. My thanks to Aaron for that. There's lots in there to think on, especially on how this crisis has, in so many ways, stripped back some of the myths Britain likes to tell about itself. Uh, and what its place in the world really is. To my mind, one of the major questions which emerges from this period is likely to be what Aaron alludes to there, about what security looks like, about what it really entails. And it's probably going to reconfigure a bit away from questions about terrorist actors towards resource security and domestic capacity transformation that was always, in some degree, likely over the course of this century with climate change uh, beginning to bite. But how far? Well, given there's been a nearly 40-year period uh, a 40-year project to effectively beggar the country on those fronts, I suppose it's an open question. And there will be strong political resistance to making those real questions again, uh, striking as it does at the heart of what conservatism has really been about as a governing philosophy. Now, uh, it is my conviction that we must show even greater determination in overcoming our differences. That was what European Council President Charles Michel wrote in his invitation letter uh, to EU leaders on Tuesday evening, uh, ahead of Thursday's video call. Uh, so what's going on with the European recovery? Well, the money needed right now at least has a name, the European Recovery Fund. What might it actually look like? Hmm. There are those who want solidarity, i.e. actual financial transfers between states, effectively greater redistribution outside national bounds. 
Italians especially, are also calling specifically and uh, very singularly for corona bonds to re- to finance the recovery, uh, although the Italians are gradually realising uh, that that's probably not going to happen, so they're warming to other possible methods as well. Uh, Central and Eastern Europeans tend to wish to avoid transfers away from them and towards the South, but don't object to, in principle, the, the, the idea of greater redistribution if their own pots of cash from the European Union actually increase. This highlights, I think, the extremely flexible nature of Euroscepticism among Eastern European countries, especially which is rarely uh, as as existential and dramatic as Euroscepticism here in Britain, although it's sometimes invoked as a parallel by right-wing Brexiteers. All of this is opposed, however, to the attitude in the north of Europe, especially in the Netherlands, which thinks of itself as the more frugal and mature part of the Union, um, as opposed to those laxer polities in the south. There's a great deal of prejudice and frankly contempt here from these nations which have broadly reaped historical advantages over the course of the latter part of the 20th century but prefer to think there's something innately virtuous about their purported frugality versus stereotypes of Mediterranean financial incontinence. Germany has been among the worst at this though there are other peculiarities to the German setup in Europe, the strength of its economy and the way it uses the expanded labour market of Europe, especially to its east. Uh, Giuseppe Conte, uh, meanwhile, accused the Netherlands of tax dumping uh, and German Germany basically of exporting too much in an interview with the Süddeutsche Zeitung on Monday. Uh, in any case, it looked like earlier this week... Angela Merkel was softening a bit. She said Germany will participate in solidarity-based responses over and above what we already have with the 500 billion euros. Um, So that's a recognition that something needs to happen here. Uh, And she pointed to mechanisms for the Commission to take on some of the financial responsibility. But she's not budging on corona bonds per se. And the Italians, quite rightly in my view, want to avoid the European stability mechanism, the risk of punitive austerity which may and probably would follow. Merkel's softening, though, looks more like a move to give France what it wants, thus keeping the Franco-German alliance stable, or more stable than it has been in recent weeks, uh, and at the heart of driving the political direction of the Union. So let's see what happens there, but there is at least agreement on the size of the fund needed. How we get there still looks pretty rocky. One intriguing suggestion comes from the bogeyman of certain parts of Europe and the subject of wide-ranging anti-Semitic conspiracy theories just about everywhere, George Soros. Soros argues in a piece for Project Syndicate that the EU should issue perpetual bonds on which the principal doesn't have to be repaid and draws he draws a comparison with the bonds that Britain issued for both to fund both its participation in the Napoleonic uh, and the First World Wars. Now, he argues that both the, the, the relative fiscal burden would be light because only the coupon payments would need to be made, so 0.5%, that would be 5 billion of, uh, on a 1 trillion uh, euro issuance. And that's something that could be easily absorbed within the European budget. Uh, and it's not a bad idea, but it would send those North European treasuries rocketing into space from sheer fury. So the Dutch finance minister might well join future video calls from somewhere orbiting Saturn. So perhaps not. Meanwhile, European Health Commissioner Stella Kyriakides suggests that Europe actually needs new powers at the European level to step in and act, and that this has been highlighted by the virus itself. So lots of pro-European federalists are making arguments like this at the moment, especially on the economic front. Um, 
I don't think it amounts to very much at all, but if nothing else, it's certainly a test of some of the old questions about how European integration proceeds, if at all. Is it something that arises as a response to and a consequence of um, various acute and sharp crises? Um, or do those crises, in fact, reveal just how much, in fact, the, the nation state, the power of the nation state itself, has been strengthened by the European Union and how much decisions are still made primarily at the national level? Here in the UK, however, obviously Parliament has returned, mostly via video link. And Keir Starmer makes his debut as leader in the Commons this afternoon, taking Prime Minister's question time, uh, though against Dominic Raab, deputising for Boris Johnson as he recovers from coronavirus at Chequers. Probably wise for Labour to actually send him to the chamber for that one, as Starmer's mastery of Zoom video conferencing has not so, uh, has not so far proved uh, impeccable on internal Labour Party calls with a recent membership call treated to his disembodied voice while the camera remained trained on Angela Rayner. I expect this maybe to offer a little bit of insight into exactly how Starmer's leadership and especially his approach to opposition during this admittedly tricky crisis period will shape up. Uh, so far the one word that, that, that has struck me for this uh, is just this, timid. Now, this is especially true of interviews recently where he's gone out of the way to stress that no government will get everything right. And generally, my sense is that you could rely on much of the press and especially the lobby to do this kind of defence of the government for you. So you don't need to do it yourself. And if they do say, well, are you claiming that the government would get everything right? You can simply say, no, of course, not every, not every government will get everything right. But few get things as wrong as this one. Anyway. We wait with bated breath. A quick look at the order paper also shows in the session following PMQs, uh, where there's an update from Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, to Parliament. There will be a question from Jeremy Corbyn, rising from the backbenches for the first time since departing the Leader's Office. Regardless, expect more questions and, and perhaps further scandal over PPE and testing today. Uh, Matt Hancock's target of 100,000 tests a day by the end of the month might well start to come back and bite him and perhaps that won't just bite him from the opposition and perhaps he'll be a useful scapegoat as the pressure grows on number 10 itself. Okay, please do get in touch, especially from around the world on james at navaramedia.com. Otherwise, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I'll see you tomorrow. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.